0: Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K. I'm Dr. Kaczynski. We're going to open the show today, as we always do, by stating that the goal of this show is to present you with a broad scope of value-based care issues, mainly involving the field of gastroenterology, but also outside of GI as well. Today, we're continuing our series devoted to wraparound services that benefit patients with GI disorders. In the first show of the series, we interviewed Dr. Lori Kiefer, who led us in a discussion on behavioral health wraparound services. The second episode was with Dr. Ali Keshabarzian, and it was focused on circadian rhythms, the inner clocks that run our body systems. He showed how they can lead to exacerbations in IBD. Today's show is focused on how nutrition can add value to the care of the IBD patient through its effect on the immune system. To assist us in our discussion today, our guest is Dr. Maria Abreu, professor of medicine and professor of microbiology and immunology at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. She is also director of the Crohn's and Colitis Center and vice president of the American Gastroenterological Association. I sit on that governing board with her. Dr. Abreu is most recognized as an expert in intestinal inflammation. So her major focus is on inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Her laboratory focuses on how changes in the microbiome can affect intestinal inflammation. She is a frequent faculty member at national and international medical meetings on IBD, and I personally have always enjoyed how she can take complex immunology and translate it into understandable principles. Welcome to the show, Maria.
1: Larry, it's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: I, I usually like to start my first question with a focus on my guest. Tell us about yourself and your background How Did you wind up in GI, that wasn't necessarily a given for a woman in those years? Wow.
1: Well, first of all, you're implying that I'm old, and I, I'm confident <laughs> that that's not at all what you meant. But I guess you're right. Once I, you know, I actually went to medical school here at the University of Miami and did a six year medical program. While I was at the University of Miami, went to the Brigham where I ultimately did my medical residency to do a rotation. I th- sort of felt I needed to like show off, like they should take me, right? To do my medicine <laughs> residency there and uh, to rehearse for them. And and the only rotation I could get was in GI. I thought, God, I got GI. Oh my goodness. You know, I really wanted cardiology or some, something else, anything else. So I, I went and did my GI rotation. Kind of the rest is history, fell in love with it. Right at the same time that I got to the Brigham David Carlak is a very famous endoscopist, really a developer of ERCP, like really a pioneer of ERCP is a better word. Did his first ERCP in my presence, the first one at, at the Brigham. All I can remember is that the nurses hadn't even opened whatever they were opening to get the whole case ready. And he was already, he had already cannulated the <laughs> common duct. <laughs> right? And that excitement of like, oh my God, this guy's amazing how amazing is that? And then I got into like people who do science of, G- of GI and people who do all these different areas within gastroenterology. I thought, oh my God, this is so super cool. And I still feel that way actually about gastroenterology. It's funny. I You're right. There weren't so many women, but there were some, and maybe maybe again, that, that kind of the skew of being in Boston and being like with all these people that are very accomplished. I personally have never felt Anything other than that we're just one big club, that being a woman hasn't held me back. In fact, it's such a neat thing to witness the big, as you've seen, the big increase in in women going into (laughs) gastroenterology. And it is due to seeing faces like our face, women's faces and women who are to have a family, to do it with children, to, if that's what you wanted to do. As I as I said, if you want to make the mistake of having getting married and having children, be my guest. Uh, but you know, certainly I did that and feel, you know, of course, very lucky that that I have all those things. That all of that is possible in the twenty four hours that that are in a day. And my I live in a, yet a, a, an even smaller world of inflammatory bowel disease, right? where we have a lot of women leaders, right? Also kind of known for being fashionistas, by the way, which mm-hmm. is which is, uh, which is also kind of fun. I think that very soon, we'll have enough women gastroenterologists that people will say, okay, I really want to see a woman gastroenterologist to have my colonoscopy done, right? We're already seeing that. And so I'm glad to at least be part of that that early wave.
0: Well, Maria, you know, you and I have shared podiums when we're talking to GI fellows and you would talk to them about academic cancer urology. I would talk to them about private practice cancer neurology. What caused you to go into academics?
1: I always wanted to do research. I always wanted to understand things at a different level. The only real platform to do that is in academia, right? Like, you know, in another part of my life, we're growing cells and organoids and doing work in mice. You know, you can't reproduce that in in private practice. That was really what led me to to be in academics. But it turns out that other things that I think are happy byproducts of that, the fact that I've actually been able to move around because of academia. You know, I've had the really the privilege of living in great cities. You know, most of the time when people go into private practice, they're kind of tethered. You know, you you start a practice. I'm not saying it's not impossible, but you start a practice like you're a very successful practice in Chicago. It, your practice defined private practice of Chicago, right? You couldn't mm-hmm. just pick up and, and move. I was, I started at Cedar Sinai. You know, maybe we'll get, you know, that was my first academic home. You know, I was a UCLA GI fellow. I joined the faculty at Cedar Sinai where I worked with Steph Targan, a leader in IBD, who's a physician scientist and has always been my role model. And then, from there, I moved to Mount Sinai, New York, another great IBD destination. And of course, here now I'm in Miami. That ability to leave the practice, if you will, in the hands of other you know, people who do what I do has been really very enriching for for me. I've gotten to live in great cities and learn how people do things in different places in a way that I wouldn't have been able to do if I was in private practice. The other thing that I think is another really joyful part of my life, I can buy a plane ticket to Copenhagen or I can buy a plane ticket to Rome. But there's an extra dimension to, you know, to go to a meeting where I where I make new friends. Like I have this network of friends. That's a crazy network of friends that like are all over the world that are friends. Like we text each other, we WhatsApp each other, we keep up with each other's lives that are all like in this world that we live in this academic world of IBD. I'm not saying that it couldn't happen in private practice, but it's just a very different, it's like I, I live in this parallel universe. You know, I also see that those worlds are merging, you know, like private practice groups are now becoming so large that now they're going to have their own, probably their own IBD expert, right, Larry? Their right, own hepatologist, right. their own. Right. So those things and and the ability to do clinical research, I think is something that could be very easily incorporated, probably more efficiently incorporated in private practice. So I'm not here to defend that there's only one way to skin the cat, but I think for what I chose to do, that was the right, right one That was the right, right venue. Yeah.
0: Well, let's use this as a pivot into your research. You spend most of your research energies with IBD immunology and microbiology and the microbiome. Tell us about that. Tell us us about what defines your research.
1: What I think inspires the questions are really not why do people get IBD, but like why doesn't everybody have IBD? Like it's just a shocking evolutionary risk that we all take by having this very high load of bacteria living, especially in our colon. You know, there's no place, there's no, there's no part of the body that's sterile. As far as I'm concerned, the the concept even that anything is sterile is anachronistic if you look yeah. hard enough. Okay. But nevertheless, in the colon, you don't need to look that hard, right? Because we are, it, it is when we talk about b- there being more bacterial cells in our body than human cells, it mostly refers to the bacteria living in the colon. And if, if the dermatologists want to kind of get in on the action and say, oh, there's a lot of bacteria on the surface of the skin, that doesn't float my boat either because the skin is like, I don't know, how many layers of of squamous cells do we have one on top of the other to serve as a barrier? By contrast, in the gut, we have one layer of epithelial mm-hmm. cells that is forming that barrier. And shockingly, here it is, so many decades later of, of having really very good tools for understanding the immunology of the gut and the discoveries that are constantly being made is, are so cool. So that got my lab. We got into uh, trying to understand how the gut handled the recognition of bacteria in the gut, okay? And so we have two broad types of immune systems. We have something called adaptive immunity, which are T cells and B cells that are the ones that are making an antibody response to specifically to like Omicron or specific to very specific thing. And then we have this other immune system called the innate immune system. And the innate immune system is not going to recognize that it's COVID-19 and an Omicron variant. It's going to recognize I'm infected with a virus and I need to fight off that virus. So the very first Molecule that was discovered that was very important in this innate immune system is something called toll like receptor four. And toll like receptor four is uniquely responsible for recognizing something called lipopolysaccharide, which is on the cell wall of everything that's a gram-negative bacterium. The discoverers of this ultimately got the Nobel Prize for that discovery. That's how big and important this a- advance was. And so very early on, before they got that Nobel Prize, I started, my lab started trying to figure out, okay, well, if Toll Receptor 4 recognizes all, of L- all LPS, and if our gut is full of gram-negative bacteria, just normally, commensal bacteria normally, then how does the gut reconcile like how does it not have this really intense inflammatory response remember if you take e coli which is a classic gram negative bacterium and put that same level of e coli into the bladder or aspirate it you're going to have toll receptor 4 is going to like go crazy if i mm-hmm. if i inject even a little bit of lps into your bloodstream you're going to start having rigors and fevers like very quickly mm-hmm. you're going to feel like crap so mm-hmm. how does the gut deal with it and so we had a series of studies Where we saw how carefully regulated, how the gut really tries to not express a lot of Toll receptor four, so it doesn't have this exuberant response. And not coincidentally, we found that this receptor was ignoring what was in the sort of in the lumen of the intestine, right, where the bacteria live, but paying a lot of attention to what was underneath it, like in other words, protecting what was on the the human side of the fence. And trying mm-hmm. to ignore what was on the, you know, on the neighbor's side of the fence where the bacteria were. We then got into understanding like how does that play a role in cancer and the colitis cancers, which you know are not so common, but you know, we're seeing dysplasia with this with polyps and flat polyps and all this stuff that we're now seeing. So that led to that. And curiously actually, that led to being interested in diet. I'll tell you what.
0: There a- do it. That's exactly where I was going. Please do it. How do I
1: know? How do I know? Because we're kindred spirits. So there were a couple of papers that showed that maybe you know lipopolysaccharide. So the part that's being recognized by Toll receptor four of lipopolysaccharide is something called lipid A, and it turns out that the thought is that there are certain saturated fatty acids, like lauric acid, would be an example, that maybe could activate Toll receptor four. Huh. Well, maybe if people are eating a lot of saturated fat, you know, you and I know that if we sent off fecal fat on anybody on any given day, we detect fecal fat, right? The abnormality mm-hmm. is to detect a lot of it, but there is leftover fat, either triglycerides or free fatty acids, even after digestion that we don't get to absorb. So then I started thinking, well, maybe certain things that you eat could directly activate this toll receptor four, could come across the epithelial barrier and activate these molecules directly without even hypothesizing that it's LPS or anything else if people eat a high fat diet. It turned out to be a not super easy thing to figure out because you give people, you give mice fat, you know, if they get fat, then that, that has its own consequences. It turned out to be mm-hmm. hard to tease out. It also turned out to be hard to tease out even in, in vitro, like in just cell lines, because these saturated fatty acids bind everything and sometimes the experiment would work and sometimes it didn't right but it led us down this path of trying to figure this out in mice and ultimately to try to study this in humans so that's how we, we got in on the back end right we didn't get into it as like oh we're diet people no we had no idea what the hell we were doing so we decided to do an initial study in ulcerative colitis patients. And we thought like, okay, ulcerative colitis, you know, it's maybe it's a little bit easier. You know, there's like a more linear relationship, right, Larry? If people have ulcerative right. colitis, the, the degree of inflammation usually tracks relatively well with how people are feeling. Right. If their their rectum is inflamed and their sigmoid is inflamed, they're going to have urgency and bleeding and they're going to have the symptoms that we know about. Predictable, so was, oh, predictable that we thought there was no. more linearity. And mm-hmm. not to mention, we had initially thought about doing sigmoidoscopies or doing something to look, you know, it's a bit easier when you're dealing with ulcerative colitis. So that was a little bit of the rubric of why we decided to start with our ulcerative colitis. And so we said, okay, we're going to do a study that's as similar to doing this in a mouse as we can make in a human. And so mm-hmm. we decided we would compare people eating a diet that was high in fat compared to people eating a diet that was low in fat. Maybe the fat, mm-hmm. maybe the fat is interacting Stimulating the toll
0: toll receptor four. And it's
1: gonna turn on inflammation. And we can do we can check for cytokines and we can check for things that like are downstream of toll receptor four signaling. That was the logic. Mm-hmm. But then it turns out that studying diet and dealing with diet is really kind of hard. Because if I said to you, really cut down on your fat, but don't change your calories, don't change your caloric intake, what does that mean? You gotta eat You're other things. Eat more carbs. You're going to eat a lot of uh, more of something else. Fat has the most calories. It's the most calorie dense. It's so much easier to do a drug study, right? Because if you, you can make a placebo, if you gave someone a pill, you make a placebo to the pill, but what's the placebo for this study? So we compare. So you were trying to keep them
0: isocaloric, but have the percentage of the calories higher of fat. Exactly. Exactly.
1: When we submitted it to our IRB, we said we're doing a study of a high fat diet versus a low fat diet. In ulcerative colitis patients. And so they said, you know, that's unethical. You can ah. give people a high fat diet. So then we said, okay, it's not a high fat diet, it's a standard American diet. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. That's, there okay. You yeah, go. that's okay. There that's you okay. Go. And of course, that's the joke, right? Of the standard American diet, it, is high diet is a high fat diet. a high fat diet. And right. it turns out that we had modeled our diet based on you know, you've heard of NHANES. Right now I don't remember what it stands for, but it's the NIH, it's a section of the NIH that does nutrition.
0: Right. Right.
1: They're the ones who ask people every so every couple of years what what are they eating? And so we kind of based it on that diet, right? Like what people were eating in terms of fiber and blah, blah, blah. Our patients, our ulcerative colitis patients at baseline were eating a diet that was even worse. Than what the standard really? American diet we had thought they would be eating. And we also inadvertently made it healthier. We had a better ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 fatty acids, right? Mm-hmm. You know how we should be eating mm-hmm. salmon and we should be eating mm-hmm. omega-3 fatty acids containing avocados foods. and yeah, yeah, and, avo- yeah. and not so much the saturated fat. So we designed the study so that each each person in the study served as, as his or her own control. They ate mm-hmm. one diet for four weeks. They had a two-week washout, and then they ate the other diet for four weeks. And we did something that I think is very important, which is that we catered the meals.
0: Right. So you knew exactly what they were eating. So
1: we knew exactly. I mean, they could choose not to eat it, and they would record if they didn't eat something. Mm -hmm. We would have them contact us if they needed to substitute something that they really hated in the catered meal, right? But we tried to have control over that. Other things that we inadvertently made better is, you know, they weren't drinking sugary drinks. You know, there's so much stuff in our food supply. It's not just you know, have an apple instead of a, a Twinkie. People who think they're having something healthy because it's a fruit juice, but if you look at what's the fruit juice- Right, it's all full know, of sugar. It's high fructose yeah. corn yeah. syrup, yeah. right? Yeah. Not right. to mention that for these patients with diarrhea, it's, uh, os- an, uh, it's osmotic, right? So, mm. you know, osmotically active stuff. As it turns out, both diets were healthier than what they were eating at baseline. We discovered that these ulcerative colitis patients, they were for all intents and purposes, Larry, in remission. Like their ulcerative okay. colitis was under, was under control.
0: Both we, groups- I mean, the
1: whole cohort was doing pretty well. They were eating almost no fruits and vegetables at baseline, like like zero. Most people had zero consumption of fresh fruits and vegetables at baseline. But in a study that where patients were followed prospectively and they collected data on what they were eating at baseline, and then six months later, how who flared and who didn't flare, people who ate more fruits and vegetables with ulcerative colitis flared less. So again, not the super... Because they're replacing the
0: fat with something healthy. Yeah.
1: So I think these poor patients weren't eating any fruits and vegetables. We started giving them fruits and vegetables. They tolerated it very well, right? So we learned a lot. We learned that you can. we're not making people sicker by giving them high fruits and vegetables, at least with ulcerative colitis, at least to patients that are doing well. And that hadn't been really that well studied. Of course, we gave them low fat. It was a very draconian fat. It was like 20% calories from fat or 15% calories from fat, which it's very hard to stay within that limit.
0: So my question would be exactly where you're going. Did the microbiome change? And then did the inflammatory markers change?
1: We collected stool. From these patients at all those time points, like before they started and after each of those diet interventions, we even need to like look more carefully during this two-week washout. Like, how quickly does it change back, or mm. you know, what, what happens when you if you have like a blitz of McDonald's in between? Like, what happens? <laughs> you know, that 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 I think still we can analyze a bit better. We found that the actual components of the microbiome changed a bit, but not so dramatically as the metabolites. Not ah, so, not as control. dramatically as what the metabolome did, that very clearly separated when you just said, okay, tell me, like, here are all the metabolites, separate them into groups, poof, it separates the people who are on the, you know, high fat, low fiber, and, you know, high fiber, low fat diet, poof, they those groups separate by metabolites, by metabolite analysis. And that's, I think, what the really interesting deal is is it's not just the bacteria are there it's like what are they doing how are they interacting right, with right. our with our human immune system with our human epithelial cells and it's very likely to be by what they're making like the little chemicals that are that they're making that are coming across the lining cuz they're little tiny chemicals we know as gastroenterologists we think about short chain fatty acids right right and, and that's that's of course some of them but there're a whole bunch of other things that probably don't even have a name
0: Maria, you are preaching to the choir here. I, I I think for the listeners, they have to realize that the metabolome is basically the soup that the bacteria in the colon are living in. It's the soup they're producing because right. d- depending on what we're feeding those bacteria, they're producing compounds that they're living in. Almost, I always use the analogy of an aquarium. You have fish in an aquarium, you feed the fish certain types of food, their excrements in the water, their foods in the water, what they produce, it's like they're living in the metabolome. But to go back to something you said earlier when you were talking about the skin, the difference between an aquarium and a colon is that aquarium wall is glass and doesn't let anything through like the skin. Whereas the lining of the colon, that one, set, one cell thick lining of the colon, has to be able to absorb certain things out of that water out of that soup. So that's interesting what you say there. So what diet do you place your ulcerative colitis patients on clinically?
1: Now there's like been a burgeoning of better done studies of, cl- you know, clinical intervention studies and in people with IBD. They aren't easy studies to do, right? Because there are people, there are a lot of moving parts, you know, how are you going to, you know, it's hard to have it be as rigorous as a, you know, a study of a new biologic medication, right? Right. But right. I tell people very simply, They should eat food cooked at home, avoid eating out, Mm -hmm. avoid anything that comes in a bag with an expiration date of a year from now. To coin something that Jim Lewis says, shop on the outside of the, you know, on the outer aisle, right? So shop, you know, shop on the outer aisle, all these things like a Mediterranean diet. If you look at the anti-inflammatory diet, all these have a beneficial effect, have have at least a non-harmful effect on IBD. And it gives people some rhythm to their life. Because I think our patients go from eating something, it upsets their stomach. So so they eliminate something. They start eliminating and eliminating and they're left with nothing. We've independently started studying or becoming interested in this concept of food related quality of life. It turns out that some that these guys in England came up with like, you know, there's quality of life for IBD, but there's a food related quality of life. And it actually kind of asks questions more about the joy of eating and the fear of eating, you know, these poor people are going nuts trying to figure out what they're, what they should and shouldn't eat. And so just making it kind of simpler for them and not saying to them, well, just eat what agrees with you. It's not, not no. everything's going to agree with you. It could be that for one meal, you, you were d- best destined to have diarrhea anyway. And then the next time you could have it, right. But at least you can say to them, it's safe to eat this, you know, try to persevere. We did find that some markers of inflammation did go down when mm-hmm. people were on this low-fat, high-fiber diet. I don't think it'll replace, I don't know, if, wanting diet to be the only therapy, right, Larry? Like yeah, As no. if, As if we could put Pandora back in the box with just diet. Right. I don't think it's beyond the pale to imagine that maybe mild cases may or may not have an anti-inflammatory effect. Although, my N of 1, I had this kid, overprotective Cuban mom. Believe it or not, people now find me because they think I'm a, a diet zealot. Like, oh, don't you think? You know, they read my papers. Nobody reads the papers except these parents, apparently, that read the papers. I don't think that anything bad will happen if you want to hold off on therapy, but why don't we have a metric? Mm-hmm. You know, if you will allow me to rescope them, right? To just, you know, not follow just the symptoms, but really prove or disprove whether the diet has had a beneficial effect or not, I'm down. I'm not going to force anyone. I- and this particular kid, it had no inflammation when i when i scoped them the, the next time no again n of one so i yeah. don't think it's nothing i think there's probably a subset and wouldn't it be awesome to know
0: which ones one?
1: yeah and yeah. like okay, yeah. based on your bacterial profile this is what right. you should eat like the diet that probably agrees with you plus mine is a biologic
0: yeah you know I've, I've heard you speak on this at meetings and i think your comment was uh you have to verify yeah you, it's it's it okay Right. It's okay for a patient to try a diet therapy, but we're going to verify. We're going to make sure it's working. I think as the science develops, we, we need more and more of it. But I think what, what I have a takeaway from what you just told me today is it might not necessarily be the change in the taxonomy of the microbiome as much as it's the function of that microbiome is demonstrated in its changes in the metabolome.
1: I totally think so. We will get more sophisticated. You know, I, I read a Cell paper, a study that they did. I think in normal people. I don't. I, my recollection is they didn't have a disease. I don't even think they were overweight. I forget if they had any special anything, but they were randomized to either a high fiber diet mm-hmm. or a diet with high fermentable foods. I think and, you shared this article with okay, me. Go okay. Yes, I'm a one-trick pony. So this <laughs> the high fermentable food diet led to more diversity. Like it, it, it did increase the diversity of of the bacteria in the in for these patients, for these people, I should say, in a way that the high fiber diet didn't, which speaks to there may be diets that help the microbiome elaborate particular metabolites. Like mm-hmm. if you give a high fiber diet, you increase the production of short chain fatty acids and other things. Mm-hmm. If you don't have those bacteria to make those you just don't have them, you know, you, you could just not have them. So maybe introducing fermentable foods, you know, certain fermentable foods could do that. Now here, you're going to get into advanced placement nutrition stuff. I don't know if it's, you know, in the study, they did a lot of yogurt. Mm -hmm. Curiously, Jim Lewis, he did a survey of patients and just to find out what food consistently Mm -hmm. agrees with you. And Mm -hmm. just, I don't remember how many, I'll say a thousand people. But one of the only things, every everyone had something different—only rice, or only a potato, or only whatever. But yogurt was actually my recollection is that yogurt was one of the one of the very short list things that seemed to agree with most people. Now you and I know it has to be in my mind: Greek yogurt, no sugar, no fruits, yeah, no yeah. none of the fake stuff. You could yeah. blend whatever else you want into. It. But I, I, I'm already my my brain is working on. What's the next thing? Like how do we make this how do we make this actionable for more yeah. people?
0: We live within the rules that were that are imposed upon us and when people have fiber contents of foods, it's not telling them whether they have soluble fiber, whether it's right. resistant starch, whether it's the kind of fiber that's going to precipitate the changes, in the microbiome that you're talking about. There's probably a big difference between the cellulose-based fiber that is totally, probably not digestible even by many of the bacteria versus the soluble fiber. and It's probably a topic for another show in itself. I have enjoyed having you on today. Hacking all your knowledge into 30 minutes is difficult, but Thank you very much, Maria. Thank you for being on today. And thanks to our audience for tuning in. You can learn more about the show on the program's page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at HCNOWRadio. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at SONARMD. We're bringing patients, providers, and payers together to reimagine GI care. Until next time, I'm Dr. K. Stay well.